Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi, this is James Joker, host of WebComics Reviews and Interviews. Today we're here with Michael Yasevsky, private investigator. So sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. Hey, welcome, James. Thank you. Appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on the show. Really looking forward to it. All right, and what is it basically that you do? So I am a private investigator. I have been for 18 plus years now, and I have worked pretty much every type of investigation case you can uh, imagine. Um, personal matters, you know, infidelity cases, child custody, missing persons, uh, asset investigations. But currently my uh, company, what we do here at my agency, we specialized in corporate fraud investigations and even more specialized in brand protection investigations, which covers uh, intellectual property. So we investigate anything from counterfeit goods to patent infringement, trademark infringements, copyright issues. We investigate uh, a lot of that directly through companies and then oftentimes through their intellectual property attorneys we investigate those matters, but we still have a division that handles personal cases and other corporate fraud and random things that come up that we're asked to do. Okay. Obviously I'm going to put it, I'm going to obviously put a pin in the uh, brand investigation, but when it comes down to what are the basic steps you do to, when it comes to investigation? Yeah. So basically a lot of it, a lot of it is uh, begins with the intake of the case, you know, understanding the objective and the information that the client is looking for, because it always comes down to information and understanding what they want to do with that information is critical for us. You know, I always call it the objective behind the objective. You know, you can ask us to, you know, investigate something or obtain a piece of information, but it really helps to know what you want to do with that information. What types of questions do you have and what sort of decisions are you trying to make based on the information you're asking us to obtain? So that part of it is critical on our end before we even get started with, you know, doing whatever we're going to do, whether it's backgrounds or undercover work or surveillance or interviews, you know, whatever the actual task is, you know, we need to know what the client wants to do with that information once we get it. That helps uh, tailor the investigation. Okay. And when you actually, so basically you basically establish the motivation behind the case. Once you get that, what do you, what's the basic steps of, invest, of investigation do you start with? Yeah. So it's changed quite a bit, uh, you know, just in the 18 years I've been an investigator with what we can access, what we can't access and how we do access it. You know, traditionally, you know, things weren't online and we had to go to courthouses and go to other locations to physically obtain public records and information we were looking for. Uh, nowadays, there's much more information online. There's, there's many more things accessible to us that we can uh, have our in-house investigators, our, our sort of desktop research investigators, obtain that information initially to sort of lay the groundwork or whatever it is we're looking into. Um, 
the cool part now is that with social media and you know uh, YouTube and all these other things, there's so much information. So, for example, in the past, if we were investigating an individual, a person, and we wanted to know more about them, we would look at their public record history. And that's your basic stuff like address history and phone numbers and email addresses, civil records, criminal records, the, the typical things you'd think about in a background check. But now there's so much more focus on what the person is putting out there themselves meaning what they put on their Facebook profile or LinkedIn or Instagram or blogs or posts or forums that they're a part of. So now a background investigation is, is never done that doesn't include that online social media aspect of it that the person is putting out there themselves. Because as you're aware, people are very revealing in their opinions and very revealing in, in their information and what they're doing on social media. And sometimes that information is way more valuable than say what their criminal past is, you know, some minor thing they did 10 years ago in their past, you know, what they're doing now and posting every single day is oftentimes more valuable than their background information. So we use a combination of these things, you know, in house to start the investigation, whether, and that, that includes whether it's on an individual or even a company that we might be investigating or a product or, you know, a website or, you know, anything we're investigating, you know, we, we, we look at both aspects of it, but generally nowadays that stuff all starts in-house, you know, you do what you can in front of your desktop at your computer before you ever go out in the field to start, you know, doing what you need to do to follow up on. Okay, and we start when you actually start the investigation. How important are the five Ws and the H? Uh, very, very. You know, there are times though that there's, um, you know, we we have long-standing clients with some of our big uh, corporate accounts, and oftentimes they want us to say they want us to look at a company. Sometimes they don't want to give us all those details. They don't want to tell us what they're looking at them for or why or how long. And the reason is because they trust us and they know that they want us to look at the company and start to unravel things that might be suspect or things that might be operating below board or that we just feel, you know, need further investigation. So with certain clients that we have longstanding relationships with, they may not even tell us why they're looking at a company. They may just say, Hey, take a look at this company and tell us what you think, what's going on. And so that's very interesting. Now, more personal matter cases, they're going to tell us every single thing because first of all, they want to tell us their story because it's very personal and, you know, maybe it's a missing loved one or, you know, a, a, a infidelity type situation and they really want to tell us everything and it helps because it does allow us to understand their motivation, their objective and, and what they want us to do for them and how we can actually help them. Um, and you know, when, when you talk about asking those questions, especially with new clients or even with attorneys who are representing clients, we, we do want to know that because I'm always looking at the case from a perspective of helping the person, you know, what, what is going on, what are they hoping to achieve and how can we really help them? Because there are times where I feel like we're not the best agency for them for that particular scenario, or 
we're the right agency, but we want to give them additional recommendations about how they may want to approach what they're looking for. So we're constantly there to, to serve our client base and serve the public that we work for. But from a, from a standpoint of how can we really help you? You know, we don't want to just take in an assignment and just start doing exactly what a client asked us to do without understanding it from a more holistic and comprehensive way. So we can really tailor something and customize an investigation that's actually going to help them. Cool. Hey, keep in mind, do this for, for Friday's perspective. It's sort of amusing because basically what you're doing, let's, from this writing perspective, what you're basically doing is you're getting a, a huge info dump right there at the beginning, and that's something we usually try to avoid. So it's sort of interesting to see you actually have a career where that's an actual part of it, you know, that big, huge exposition matter right there at the beginning of the case. Yeah, and that's such a great point and a great um, follow-up because one of the things and you know, in my career, I've had such great success that I've begun to start training other private investigators who are trying to grow their business. And one of the things I talk about all the time is the is what I call the product. And most of the time, that's the report. And there's a lot of writing. I mean, when when I was in school and when I went through college, you know, I, I never was all that big on writing essays and composition reports and things. It, it just wasn't something I looked forward to doing or got excited about. And now I write every single day. I, I put, you know, well, not pen to paper, but I, I put hands to keyboard every single day and I write reports. And one of the things about, um, that w- one of the things that has, has, been a a product of my success in the growth of my agency is that we produce a report that I would put up against any investigative company. You know, we put up a report that is well laid out. It's thoughtful. It's detailed. It's edited. You know, we go through all those processes to actually write a report that we're proud of because, you know, oftentimes our client who's paying us or asking us for that investigation, they're not the only one that's going to read that report. You know, they're going to pass it to an attorney or they may pass it to a coworker or colleague. They may pass it to, you know, some other, you know, entity. It may be submitted to court as a testimony. So, you know, I take those reports and in the writing of those reports very seriously. And it's one of the main things that we train our new investigators on is, how to write reports, the language, the layout of the reports, how they look, how they feel, you know, when to add things, when to leave things out. And it, the, the writing aspect for, for a successful private investigator is so huge. And, and a lot of people don't think about that part of it. And quite frankly, in, in our industry, that a lot of people don't write a great report. And that's something we pride ourselves on. And we've actually had many referral clients call us up and say, hey, I saw your report on such and such or so-and-so gave me a copy of this report on this other case you did. And just by looking at that report and reading it, they, they knew we were the company they wanted to use, that we were the PI they wanted to come to. And, that, and we take you know, great pride in, in producing a, a report and writing in a way that you know, makes sense for our clients. Cool. Obviously, I'm going to assume you do a lot of interviewing when you when you do the investigation. Yep, lots of interviews. 
What's the most effective interview tactic you employ when it comes to getting information? So I guess it would depend on, you know, we do interviews of witnesses and witness interviews uh, can be just making the person comfortable in the beginning and making sure that they understand that, you know, what they're doing and what they're providing is, is going to help the situation. And, you know, they're not considered a narc or they're ratting someone out or, or something like that. So it's a matter of making them feel comfortable. You know, we oftentimes interview people that, you know, where it's more of an interrogation, you know, we, we know certain things, we've already done our investigation, and now we're really interrogating them to get their assistance, because we've already done our investigation, and we know what's going on. We're basically asking them questions we already know the answers to. And so the techniques in an interrogation are quite different than the techniques used in a witness interview, or, you know, an interview that's uh, going to be something like a precursor to a deposition or something like that, that that's an attorney's going to do. But, you know, overall it, it's making, you know, the person feel comfortable, uh, helping them understand the, the reasons why you're there uh, because it can be pretty intimidating. You know, when someone tells you, Hey, an investigator is going to come here and, you know, interview you or talk to you about this situation. It, it's generally not something people do very often and it can be quite intimidating. So we, we try to make them comfortable and, you know, at the same time, let, let them know and help them understand that, you know, we're there to help them and we're there to help the situation. When it comes to the actual questions, do you have any general pattern to it? Like, for example, start with the easy questions and get to the harder questions, or do you start with the harder questions first? Yeah, well, one of the things we like to do, because we're trained in body language and some other, um, you know, things that I won't talk about right here, but we're trained to uh, start with questions that we know the person will not uh, be untruthful about. Simple things, your name, your address, where do you work, you know, just, just basic, you know, questions so that we can get a baseline of how that person answers when they're being truthful so that we can look for things that are opposite of that. And those could be indicators of the person being untruthful. So we do start with some very simple, basic questions that we know they're not going to lie about. They're going to, you know, tell us their real name. They're going to tell us where they live and their, their date of birth and things like that. So we can get that baseline of, of, of body language and eye movement and things like that. Um, one thing that I like to do that I was trained and taught on and I've had great success with is when we're going to interview someone about, if it's about a specific situation, so for example, if it was a witness to a car accident and we get their baseline information and then I like to just ask them to tell the story, you know, tell, tell me about what happened and just let them tell that story. I was standing on the corner and I saw this car make a left and it was a red light and, you know, whatever the story was. Then I like to go into my questions based on their story. And then at the end, I, I allow them the opportunity to tell us anything else that they may have forgotten or wasn't part. So I have this, this pattern that I've developed in terms of allowing them to just tell a narrative story about what happened and then go into all my questions and then let them have the final word. Cause it, 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 allows them to recall things um, a little bit better and also just kind of be a little off the cuff in 
in the beginning so that they're more comfortable with answering really direct questions and, and difficult things. Because if anyone's aware of eyewitness testimony and you hear this all the time, it, it's really not that good. People don't recall things that well, especially when it's like a quick in the moment thing, it, it's very difficult to recall the details. So you, you have to use certain techniques and allow them to feel comfortable and not feel, you know, you don't want to make someone in, in a, in a regular interview feel like they're being interrogated and vice versa. When you're interrogating someone, you don't want to make them feel that they're just going to control the interview. Right. I just had, um, how hard is it to not direct the questions as in basically lead that witness down this particular road? Oh, great question. Great question. Yeah. You, you definitely want to make sure you're not leading them into an answer. Um, you know, attorneys will tear that apart later on. If that ever <laughs> ends up, if that interview ever ends up being played in court, they will, they will tear you apart on leading questions. So, um, the, the, the technique, you know, part of the technique I had just talked about where we let them tell a story and then we ask all the questions we have and then let them tell their story again if they have anything to add. Um, you know, the, the thing about leading questions is, you know, attorneys could argue anything's a leading question if, if it's very specific and, you know, your tone and, and your, your questioning is in a particular way. But, um, for the most part, you know, I, I like to let the person do the talking, you know, and you're doing an interview here of me and it, and it's, it's great because you're letting me talk. You're letting me continue on, you know, there's this technique when you're interviewing someone of, you know, you ask them a question, they give you a response. If it's not the whole response you want, just keeping quiet, making right. them say the next word because they're going to give you more. They're always going to give you more because people in general don't like uncomfortable pauses. So if you force an uncomfortable pause on them, they're going to continue talking. So we like to do that. We like to ask a question, get the response, and then not say another word. Make them, make them go on, and typically they will. They'll, they'll tell you more than they would have. Cool. Yeah, obviously, uh, you're not using the interrogation technique we see in a lot of TV and movies. <laughs> right, right, yeah. You know, TV and movies have not done a whole lot for the PI career. <laughs> they, um, they demonstrate some really unrealistic things, some, some um, not just a lifestyle things, you know, like the Magnum PI thing, you know, running around with the unlimited expense account, living in a beach house in Hawaii, driving around in the boss's Ferrari. Um, you know, that's what I grew up watching on TV and, and you know, a, a lifestyle I loved and was like, Oh man, this is, this would be the greatest job ever. But, um, also the, the, you know, the forensic techniques you see on TV, the fact that they solve every case in, in one hour on NCIS, um, you know, other investigative things like this. Yeah, it, it does a disservice to us because we have to explain a lot of times to clients like what we can and can't do. And then, of course, like on TV, interrogations are, you know, hitting a guy with a phone book and, you know, doing this bad cop, good cop type stuff and, and all these other, you know, techniques that you see on TV that generally don't work 
Um, you know, there's, there's been a lot of conversation recently about uh, torture techniques and all the scandal over the waterboarding and all of that stuff that it just doesn't work. You know, developing a relationship with the person you're interviewing or interrogating and, you know, helping them understand that you truly are there to help their situation or help whatever situation they're passionate about or that they're concerned about or that they care about. That's what really leads. Hello? That stuff is really reserved for Hollywood and, and for the movies. <laughs> Yeah, I and then I'm just the other approach. Of course, I'm only about a lot of fabulous babes don't really come into your office all that often. <laughs> yep, that's for sure. That's for sure. It's uh, it's funny because you know we we get a lot of outrageous requests, and they're, they're just you can tell that they're rooted in what people see on TV, uh, and it, it's. It's sometimes a, a situation where you got to kind of pre-qualify your client and say, I don't know if I can help you if those are your expectations because those that, you know, sometimes they ask us for things that literally just don't exist. <laughs> they're, they're straight out of, they're straight out of the minds of Hollywood writers and they just don't exist. And, and people believe that they do. Yeah, I can imagine. All right. Taking, so we got the basic stuff taken care of. Uh, Going into more my area, when you basically start looking at brand investigation, what's that entail? Yeah, so this has been a focus of my agency for years now, the brand protection, the the intellectual property. Um, in fact, I should be in Singapore right now at the International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition and the International Trademark Association Conference. Um, which is supposed to be right now this week in Singapore. So I'm pretty disappointed that the COVID-19 canceled this, <laughs> this conference because that was going to be a really cool trip. Um, but when we start working with any brand on their intellectual property and how they want to protect it, the most interesting thing about it is protecting the brand is whatever it means to them. You know, we can't define what it means to protect their brand. I'll give you an example. Like we, we may work with multiple uh, auto manufacturers in, in the automotive industry and each one is having us do different things that are most important to them into protecting their brand. You know, some companies want to aggressively protect their trademarks. Some are having a um, outrageous problem with counterfeit goods. Others are having copyright issues. Others are having patent infringement. So it just depends on, you know, what is important to that brand and to that person who owns that intellectual property. So the techniques we can provide to them are traditional. You know, their undercover work and their research and their documentation and interviews and undercover purchases and these things we do to gather evidence for them and document it. But their objective and motivations are oftentimes wildly different, even, even with clients in the same exact industry, even clients who are competitors of one another choose to protect their 
their intellectual property in different ways. And, and that's what is so interesting for, for us to see how those different uh, companies and different individuals, you know, have their attorneys protect that property. When it comes down to how aggressive, what's the range as far as aggressive, as far as how protected they are of that brand? Oh, that, that varies as well, which is a great point. Um, you know, we have clients who are very aggressive with criminal actions. They want to go after someone who is, you know, damaging their, their product or uh, dealing in illicit goods or distributing, you know, outside of, you know, the, the, the bounds of the laws. And so there are clients who are, are really only coming to us so that we can make criminal cases where we're going to work with law enforcement, work with, you know, local, state, federal agencies, um, conduct investigations, gather evidence, and provide it to law enforcement to then coordinate a criminal action. And then there's clients who will file civil case after civil case because they want to, you know, quickly and sometimes quietly um, shut down an operation, uh, get a recovery, a judgment, or at least get get a, um, you know, settlement of some sort. So there are clients who are using their brand protection investigations and their intellectual property investigations to actually, you know, make recoveries. They're, they're actually, you know, filing lawsuits, getting set by shutting down, you know, these people that are infringing against them. So companies and individuals I have seen get very aggressive. There's a client of ours in the beverage industry and, I remember when I met with the CEO, uh, the first meeting, he said, I want to tell you what um, my philosophy is on anyone that infringes on our brand. And I, and I said, okay, that's great. I, I, I'd love to hear it. He looked at me and he goes, well, I can't say the name of the company, but I'll say company is nobody's bitch. That was his actual <laughs> um, philosophy. And so basically anything we find where someone is using their likeness, their name, their anything that even looks like their logo or color scheme or the names of their beverages, they just aggressively go after them. They have a team of attorneys that will, you know, get right on top of those people and immediately file suits and make sure that they're um, aware that they are going to aggressively pursue protecting their, their brand and their intellectual property. Basically, for, especially in this case, no company or no person is too small for them to go after. Right. And a lot of people sometimes don't understand that, you know, there's, you know, sometimes you see a story in the paper and they're like, Oh, this big company is coming down on this small business owner. He's just trying to make a living and, and, and whatever. But what they don't understand is, you know, when you file for a trademark and it's approved by the USPTO or any other trademark, you know, organization in other countries, you're required to use the trademark, but then you're also required to protect the trademark. You can't just take trademarks out on things and then never use them. Uh, they, they'll, they'll be considered abandoned and you won't be able to uh, protect them. And also if you selectively go after certain people that are infringing on your trademark, but not others that could be used against you in those other cases where they say, Hey, you didn't care about this guy using it over here in this particular way. Why are you coming after us? So 
for the uh, for the holder and the owner of that intellectual property, that trademark, whatever it is, they they actually have an obligation to protect it. So, you know, oftentimes they get uh, berated in the news or the media where you know people are just you know, beside themselves that a big multi-billion dollar company would be going after a little guy who has a bar in one side of some little town. But that's, that's not what it's about. It's about them, you know, consistently protecting their trademark and making sure that they can uh, aggressively protect it if it's happening with a bigger company. So that's why you see these uh, constant trademark. There's a, there's a case right now, because we like to post all these, uh, these, disputes on on our social media and our web pages and stuff but there's just dispute right now between two wine companies and and the use of the name and how it looks on the label and all that kind of stuff and those are typical and, and they're important because it helps people understand that you know if you build a brand or you build a name or you build something you know like some of your listeners you know if they're if they're creating a, a character or a comic or a title you know it's valuable and you know, you, you should be able to protect it and you should be able to create something and then have it be yours and not have it be ripped off by other people or copied or diminished in that way. Yeah. The obligatory, I wasn't only bringing up the question for the people that have a uh, property that they need to protect, but I'm also bringing this up because, well, well, when it comes down to it, we're having a little bit of a convention crisis ourselves in the comic book industry right now. And part of you know, obviously, because of the COVID, we can't go to a lot of conventions because a lot of them have been shut down. But mm-hmm. part of what makes going to conventions fun is you see a lot of people that are selling goods that are derived from other people's works. Uh, my personal favorite example are the Doctor Who smash-ups, for example, um, where you see basically people using other people's works and having a little bit of fun on of their own. So it's always fun to basically point out that yeah, if you're going to do a convention t-shirt, you have to basically make sure that it actually is following a law and don't get too crazy, which I guess brings up the fun question. Have you actually ever been asked to investigate somebody at an actual convention? Yes. Yeah, so one of the most interesting cases of my career had was, so Jameis, I think I told you a little bit about the, the fact that we did an investigation for um, the attorneys representing Stan Lee. I can talk right. about that, but, um, you know, if we want to, but before that, to answer your question directly, yes, we have uh, gone to numerous conventions and conferences. In fact, I was just at, um, uh, right before COVID shut everything down, we were at the Toy Fair, which is uh, held in New York City every year, and there are a lot of people who will create um, figurines and other, you know, merchandise from the uh, characters. And, you know, whether that's, you know, uh, Sailor Moon or, you know, some anime or some um, uh, comic book character where they're going to take that likeness and make bobblehead dolls or or some other, you know, collectible. Uh, We were looking at those... uh, brands and making sure that they are licensed, making sure that they have all of the correct, um, you know, things they need in place so that they can do that. But what we found so interesting at the toy fair is that we found a lot of these artists who were creating these things and becoming popular and successful. Now people are ripping them off. 
So they went through the proper channels, but now someone else isn't going through the proper channels and they're trying to make knockoff or cheap versions of the things that they've created. So the, there's just a, a, a no end to it. And we, we go to conventions and conferences for almost every industry. We go to the big SEMA show in Las Vegas for the car industry. We go to a lot of um, the uh, NAB media shows in New York City and also in Las Vegas because there's a lot of signal piracy and, and other things involved in that sort of intellectual property. But yeah, we oftentimes get hired to go and pose as you know potential uh, buyers from conventions, conferences, trade shows, and investigate those sellers and, and creators of those products because they, they could be infringing. The obvious takeaway for the listener is to protect your copyright and be aware that there are people out there that are going to be basically looking for you to screw up. Yeah. And, you know, one interesting thing that we work with some of our smaller clients, you know, a lot of times um, we, we've worked with maybe six or seven companies that uh, have appeared on Shark Tank. And they, as soon as they appear on Shark Tank, if they get an investment, or even if they don't, but it's a great product or, or something that is, is very compelling, uh, immediately people will start doing a knockoff version, or they'll do a copycat version, or they'll just do a straight up counterfeit version of it, because they know once it appears on Shark Tank, there's going to be a high demand for it. And so it, it's one of those situations sometimes where the first time you realize someone is copying your intellectual property at first it's almost like a little cause for celebration because the, you, you now know the demand is high enough that someone's willing to copy it or try to get a piece of it um, and that it's popular enough. But then right away you need to start figuring out some strategies to protect it for sure. Okay. Well, and I guess, yeah, Bleacher, I'm trying to keep away from the stand lead, not necessarily because I you know I know it's a feather in your cap, but at the same time, it's more trying to uh, more in line with my show to basically look at the weird things like investigations and or how people do their research as well as how people protect their copyrights. So, yeah, for sure. And you know, one one thing that I found uh, very interesting when we were at the, I'm trying to remember one of the last comic book shows I was at, it was in San Jose and, you know, we were going around and, and, you know, looking at all of the merchandise and the merchandise was so interesting to me because they, you know, there's always companies that are willing to license almost anything. Like if you want to make a licensed version of something you came up with, for example, for the NCAA, like you want to put this on every college campus because it's a cool thing that people might buy they, they will license almost anything <laughs> you know there's, there's the famous um uh line from gene simmons of kiss that he, he's never come across something he didn't license and put kiss's name on because he knew they were going to make money every time they license things so there's there's these different philosophies on you know what people are willing to do and and what they're willing to protect and how far they're willing to go to protect it you know, there, there's situations where uh, we've seen people create something that is they know is infringing and they know is going to get the attention of the intellectual property rights holder, but they do it for, for the, the sake of the publicity, like actually waiting and wanting to be 
served a cease and desist order or served a lawsuit so they can use that as attention for what they're doing. And ultimately, they may need to stop what they're doing or settle on some agreement. But the fact that a company actually came after them, they use that for publicity. It's like the old, you know, no publicity is bad publicity. So they they actually will start out with a plan to actually create something that they know they're going to to get negative attention on because they're going to use it for publicity. It's it's bizarre. No, it's the whole rebel thing. If basically you want to establish that you basically you have a lot of artists you want to establish themselves as rebels to authority and the easy way to establish yourself as such is to have authority come after you. Yeah, and one thing that's been interesting that's come out of that is, you know, oftentimes, especially in the in the creative spaces, you know, companies have then worked deals where they actually hired those individuals and said, look, we, we love what you're doing. You just can't do it this way. Let's, let's figure out a way to, to work together or let's figure out a way to license something. You know, we have some clients who, um, you know, to, to speak about um, like t-shirts, you know, people always want to create a t-shirt no matter what it is, whether if it's something cool with Marvel or whether it's something cool with a sports franchise or, or whatever they're doing you know, they, they take liberties, as you know, and like you said, they, 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 they love the, the thing that they're creating and they, and they love the, the, the style or the situation they're patterning it after, but they create something that just isn't allowable. So, you know, these companies come to them and they say, look, like, this is amazing. Like your artwork's amazing. Your concept's amazing. The way you marketed this is even amazing. Like how can we come together and create something together or even license something. Um, and, and, you know, to your point about sort of the rebel spirit, I mean, some people are like, no, nah, I don't want to work with this big corporate company. I don't want to become corporate. And others end up making a great, um, you know, career and business out of it. So we have certain clients who will have us conduct an investigation and then actually serve the cease and desist orders. And in, you know, with certain companies and certain clients within those cease and desist orders, is the actual information to reach out to the proper channels, the proper attorney or the proper person in charge of licensing or the proper person in charge of distribution, because they don't want to just take a hard line of shutting down somebody who may actually be a good business partner, but they just want to do it the right way according to their policy and, and, you know, work with them to make that happen. So, you know, as far as your, your, you know, a follow-up on your question before about aggressiveness, a lot of these clients are aggressive in a way that, you know, they, they want to do more business. They want to help that person and they want to be in business with them versus just aggressively shutting them down and, and treating them, you know, like a second-class person. Well, yeah, it makes a lot of sense from the business because at that point you basically, it's basically at that point you're just absorbing their skills into yours and it's win-win for both situations usually. Yeah, no. especially when things are like really complex. I mean, we do some stuff with patent um, infringement and some other things with some some real technology involved and, and a lot of, um, you know, technical expertise, especially in the signal piracy space or the content streaming space, all of this stuff that's going on right now. And a lot of times those those companies as part of the agreement will say, look, and part of the settlement is like, can you tell us how you 
how you were able to decrypt our signal or how were you able to host this content and help us to defeat the next person who's going to try to do this to us. And sometimes they, they've actually hired those individuals, you know, as full-time employees, sometimes uh, contractually. And uh, other times those people are just, nope, I, I don't want to give you away my secrets. If you can't figure it out, that's, that's on you. So there's been so many interesting cases like that where clients try to work with individuals and, you know, sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. Okay, and just because we have a few more minutes, uh, how how do you basically build your business? Just out of curiosity. So the number one way that I built my business and the way I I train and teach other private investigators is is we know how to find the problems. You know, if there's a client we want to work with, or a company we want to work with, or a brand, we know how to go out there into the secondary market and find those issues. And so what we tend to do is we actually will will work up some information on an actual target or an actual case and provide that to them. We, we just, we just give of ourselves and, and we demonstrate to them what we can do. You know, we, we don't just cold call them on the phone and say, Hey, this is who we are. This is what we do. Maybe we can help you. No, we, we demonstrate first, you know, and provide value before we ask for any sort of business relationship. And that has really been, the number one thing that is that has really helped us grow um, outside of the fact that we we actually produce a great product you know we talked about the writing so when we do these um, these mock-up cases for them we we provide them copies of the reports we demonstrate to them like what they can expect if they actually become a client and so from their perspective it's like wow if they were willing to do this much and in we're not even paying them. They're not even a customer or client yet of ours. Imagine, you know, how much attention and how much care they're going to give when we actually hire them to do a job. So we actually kind of give away. It's, it's almost like giving a free sample of, of a hot dog. If you're, you're, you know, starting a hot dog business, <laughs> you know, we give them a little free sample of what we do. That uh, is an actual case though. You know, it's not just a sample report. It's a, it's a actual situation they may be concerned about because it's an actual target that we can uh, present to them. And do you guys do a lot more word of mouth type stuff or more actual advertising? Uh, there's, it's much more a referral business, you know, even in the intellectual property space, the brand protection space, it's a niche uh, investigative market. And so we go to the couple of conferences, the one I mentioned um, that was supposed to be in Singapore this week. We go to that conference every year. We meet with the attorneys. We meet with the companies. But a lot of our business does come word of mouth. And fortunately for us, a lot of the big law firms that handle intellectual property, they work for many companies. And so when they need something, they introduce us to those companies and we end up, you know, gaining their 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 business through referrals. Cool. So basically what it is, you have a great product, you've got great word of mouth, and you have free samples available. Absolutely. Yep. We, I say we, we, what I call it I, for my clients, I call it our rise system. We research, we investigate, we share, and then we evaluate. And we do that over and over 
Um, you know, we research a company, we investigate something, we share it with them, and then we evaluate whether or not we'll be a good fit for each other. And, and that has just been the, the model for our success is to uh, share and give and demonstrate that we're there to help them and not just, you know, looking for, for business, you know, we're there to actually help them with whatever problem they have and, and however they want to protect their brain. Yeah, that's generally true pretty much everywhere. I mean, if I was looking at this as a comic creator, obviously maintaining a great product, you know, making sure I've got the best writer, the best artist, making sure I've got some sort of sample available, for example, using a web comic system. And as you point out, basically make sure that I deliver everything on time is actually going to be part of that. Yep, so, absolutely. Just, just showing you doesn't doesn't necessarily uh, – the big problem, of course, is a lot of the specifics may not apply to our industry, but a lot of the generals do. So, so obviously, uh, I think we've pretty much covered anything. Any final thoughts, any words of advice? Yeah, the, the one thing I would uh, recommend for anybody who's a content creator or is you know, creating, um, you know, anything, whether it's books or online content or streaming content or physical product is just get out in front of the protection of it. You know, make sure that you're not waiting until there's a problem, you know, be proactive in how you're going to protect that. And there's, you know, attorneys who can help with that. There's investigators who can help with that. There's, you know, industry people in your specific industry that can help you understand that because you, you really want to make sure you do it on the front end and that you're, you know, proactive and, and you don't just wake up one day and realize that your stuff is being, you know, put all over the place. And, and it's not something that you're being, you know, compensated for or credited with because that it, it can it can go from zero to 100 really quick in terms of, you know, people you know, trying to capitalize on, on your your brand and your intellectual property. Well, and of course, the obligatory plug. Yeah, so our website is toltech.net, T-O-L-T-E-C.net, Toltech Investigations. We're doing business right now under the name Toltech Brand Protection because that's the majority of what we do. Uh, You can also find us on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Instagram. And I'm easy to find. Cool. It's been great having you. Hey, thanks, Jameis. I really appreciate it and appreciate your time today. Thanks. No problem. Thanks for taking your time. Hey, you got it. This episode of Web Reviews and Interviews is brought to you by PodFaves.com. You love podcasts, but it's hard finding that next bingeable show. PodFaves has taken out the guesswork by easily identifying the best podcasts out there, so you can spend less time searching and more time listening. That's P-O-D-F-A-V-S dot com. And that's our show. For those interested in supporting the show, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash two sparrows, T-W-O. It features minicasts, the next episode, and unedited interviews, and I'm working on transcripts of the various shows. We also have an Alexis app offering two-minute minicasts offering writing and business tips, as well as affirmations to keep you writing. We also have curated playlists on YouTube, with all the shows broken down to different playlists based on topic. It also includes a good part of available minicasts, as well as the Alexis briefs. So please support our Patreon page, download the Alexis app, and subscribe to the YouTube channel, and please talk to us on Facebook. Thank you, and have a great day.